Greetings, listeners. Welcome to Soil and Human Health. Today, it's my unadorned voice. Rory, the sound engineer, has been blown off course by Cyclone Saroja, but he'll be back. Today's episode, the potentiality industry. For years now, I've been caught up in the language of potentiality, been hot for promises of personal transformation. And they've spiralled out from the insights into the life-expanding ideas of quantum physics, linked with the you-can-change-your-life type of chatter so freely and dangerously available on the net. The language of the potentiality industry embraces the knowledge that energy never ends, it only transforms. But from here, it quickly morphs into a spiritual sleight of hand, and that seems to elevate the unwary human onto a level of existence that neatly sidesteps the grief, sickness, feebleness and pain of endings. So this potentiality industry repackages ideas that have come to us through ancient pathways of thought. But is this spiritual know-how linked to technology going to team up and cut us loose from the tired old ideas of being human? Can it really project us into a safe, clean, bioavailable, transhuman life that never really ends? Do we want it to? You are not your DNA. Your thoughts create your reality. Don't like what's happening? You choose. You choose. You choose. Be different. Be better. So how is all this potentiality working out for you? I've got a report. I remain, very sadly, workshop after workshop, a lumpen mass of protoplasm, still easily recognisable to myself and others as one A.J. Rowland maybe with added wrinkles and droopy bits. So I have finally been saved from the endless task of fashioning myself into a better person. And I owe this salvation in large part to Stephen Jenkinson, ace cultural commentator and extraordinary raconteur. From the perspective of feeling a bit of a lame duck in the zone of potentiality, listening to Stephen is like being hit in the face with a wet fish It's shocking and ultimately completely refreshing. It's such a relief to ingest his basic message. To be human is to live with limitations. And we have his clear reportage to guide us from lived experience in the wards of the palliative care institutions. Our society is death phobic. And that's Stephen's thing. He's a grief walker and he's here to tell us that dying is part of being alive. Stephen's work in what he calls the death trade has made me really appreciate my father, now 91 years old. He's in reasonable health, not on any medication except for the odd disparin and plenty of white wine. But how beautifully Dad is modelling the loss of competence that comes with old age. He meets every day with equanimity, laughs at his own ineptitude in the face of a severely curtailed short-term memory. One of his favoured lines is, the memory of Barry runneth not, or sometimes in less flowery terms, your father's losing it. He's sometimes muddled and sometimes frustrated and remains resigned and endlessly sad that his wife of many years died and left him on his own. But basically he seems open to whatever happens, is easygoing about the shrinking of his horizons 
and grateful for the company of his children and those who still remember him. I compare my experiences with my father with other friends who are facing nightmare scenarios of ageing parents. I'm listening to reports from others about fathers holding on to their perceived control of life and resources, tight-fisted with anger and meanness, to the point where I've started to think that there's a nation of Mugabes out there, hanging on like grim death, trying to manipulate and control their children, using their land, their wealth, to leverage their failing powers to the bitter end. In short, they're putting a lot of consciousness into holding on to their diminishing lives, rather than turning into their own dying, as if they can put dying on hold, as if it is theirs to order. Stephen tells us that death is a deity, one to be befriended, invited in, given a seat close to the fire, not one to ignore or fight. Why? Because dying is asking something of you. Just those words alone. Dying is asking something of me? Really? Stephen invites us to contemplate that if you're not living with dying when you are dying, if you are instead hanging on to the God of competence and control in denial of dying, you're not modelling to those that live on after you and understanding that death lives within life and creates the fullness of human experience. It makes life possible. Maybe all these Mugabes are the end result of a society that applauds the individual who models narcissistic and greater-than-others behaviour. Our society seems to be constructed around the idea that the individual is in full control of all life's forces and that insistence on control and fight is part of the hubri that is driving the ecological and social collapse we're currently living with. But ultimately, we're not above life. We're part of life and life is informed and made possible by our dying. The strange thing is that hours of immersing myself in Stephen's bracing world of grief and dying has been really humbling. It's brought me to earth. It's been a relief to loosen some of my wild scattergun ambitions. Really, the core of what I do, how I live, is fine. It's the efforts to puff myself up like an angry cat to look bigger in the world. They're the stupid bits. Honestly, what has years of semi-focused efforts to transform myself really bought? I can look back and laugh now when I think of the moments of spiritual euphoria that have led me to float off like a grass seed to other parts of the globe. Not because these moments were any less real than other moments I've occupied, but because I neglected to ground these new certainties into my physical reality, my body, the soil under my feet, daily life, a total misreading of how the spiritual, in inverted commas, functions in real life. So here's my message for today. Fully embody your physical reality. Stephen relates that the worst deaths he witnessed that left trauma in their wake were when individuals died small, meaning without embracing the reality that their ending was making way for new life. A big death, a righteous dying, is about connecting loved ones with the deeper meaning of human death as part of cultural and ancestral continuity. Tyson Yunkaporter's book, Sand Talk, 
shows how Aboriginal culture endeavours to disabuse individuals of the common delusion that they're better than or greater than anyone else. That's a major part of what tribal initiations are about. According to Tyson, the initiation is to teach the youngster that they are not special, but that they belong to something special. Again, the relief for us try-hard individuals. I am so reclaiming my indigeneity. When I was coming into teenage life, why the hell didn't someone drop the mantle of civilization, lay me on a rock and do something ritually transformative using smoke, fire, informed elders and a bunch of peeps? Why wasn't I helped to understand that I was neither greater nor lesser than anyone else? and properly welcome to play my own role as a vital particular node within the vast cooperative net that makes up the context of the life I was born into. I do want to be fully human, not a separate self-operating unit in a complicated mechanical system prone to crashing, but a fully integrated part of a self-healing, self-organising, biodiverse ecosystem. Look, it's not all bad, of course, and I don't mean to pretend the Indigenous communities have all the answers or that Western civilization is devoid of good. We're all only human. But what will make me take the reins for a better future? Sitting in the shadow of a fearsome, roof-eating, tree-uprooting cyclone heading towards Geraldton, maybe I'm waiting for the direct and massive impact of flood or fire or rampant disease to whack me out of my individual box into a new way of operating. But why am I waiting for a crisis to push me to a a deeper engagement with the life I'm living? Well, today, post-cyclone, I feel closer to radical action than I did before. I know how powerful it is to work with others towards a common goal, to be part of something bigger than me, and yet to be differentiated and valued for my own contribution one pair of legs in a big centipede marching towards a shared vision of cultural and ecological sanity. I'm feeling it now in the loose network of Confederates who are concentrating their different energies on driving big change in the way we manage land and food production. And how else can we face the wicked problems on our agenda except as a more or less coherent mob? And I accept, at least on paper, that the fellow pairs of legs on my imagined centipede will mostly hold wildly different opinions from me, and some will be in high heels, some will be in thongs, some barefoot. But the part of me that isn't involved in rampant narcissistic behaviour will be on the lookout for what we share, the relatable bits, the common needs and desires that drive all of our behaviours. As long as we understand that it's not about us, the small us, It's about the big us, and the big us clearly needs to be nurtured so that every day it can grow bigger, more real and more inclusive until we can register pond algae as a useful and valued connection without batting an eye. The us project I'm engaged with is to do with land management systems and soil health and production of food. And to this end, ever learning... I join a group down at Muresk Ag College in Northam to do a holistic management course. And I've just glanced at my homework 
and found a page set up with, and I quote, to help overcome the human tendency to focus on the problem rather than deal with complexity. I immediately thought of cases in point. We had some heavy rainfalls inland before the cyclone that led to big floods in the Gascoigne region fairly recently. Huge damage to horticultural and plantations around Carnarvon. Previous efforts to face the tendency of this cyclonic summer rain events to wipe out agriculture have focused on the site of the worst damage near the coast. This is where engineers constructed a big, fiendishly expensive bulwark against the floodwaters that rage in from the rangelands. It failed, big time. They were focusing on the problem, which was really a downstream symptom of a much bigger scenario. Over summer, it's easy to see that a lot of the country inland from the Gascoigne is in bad shape. A lot of bared ground not enough living roots to hold the earth in place and sites of extreme erosion. So it's here, deep in the rangelands, hundreds of kilometres into the interior, where the Gascoigne River begins, where a solution could be nutted out once the true sources of the problem are identified. Human creativity, plus all the tools we have at hand, guarantee a great outcome for those suffering on the coast, if we step out of our old way of thinking. Mechanical means, such as dropping rocks and pushing up earth barriers to diffuse the speed and direction of water flow, can be applied at strategic points across the plains where the floodwaters arise. Once water starts sinking into the earth, plants start repopulating bare ground and eventually it will be possible to use grazing animals, managed in big mobs over short periods of time, to stimulate microbial and plant growth. You get the drift. It's a long-term, multifaceted, broadly applied approach that is needed. It's pretty low-tech and redefines infrastructure as it is more about many dispersed, coordinated, small interventions than whopping great walls. And it requires an aggregate of input from all land users, miners, pastoralists, farmers, indigenous communities, anyone who understands how land works out there needs to be a part of the solution. So we have the tools and the know-how, but we need to communicate across a big network of people and things to connect the dots and then ride those connections to see the bigger picture. Here's another example of focusing on the problem rather than the complexity, courtesy of the grief walker. Stephen contends that dying is a cultural act, and that if you hand your dying over to the people wearing white in institutions and make dying an individually curated event, then euthanasia is, if not inevitable, then an understandable outcome of the thinking. Up until this point, I was really neither for nor against legalising euthanasia. Well, I doubt I could have voted against it, in view of the heartbreaking tales of suffering that have been used to push for legislative support, but where else to get my bearings in this moral quagmire? Between the unappealing rigidity of religious thought and individual tales of pain, I've been all at sea. Now I see how linear and inadequate the arguments around assisted dying are, 
because they start at the site of the problem rather than looking at the complexity of the culture and the system within which we undertake or don't undertake, as Stephen would tell us, our dying. Euthanasia is like the wall erected by engineers, but our dying is the rain that hits bared ground hundreds of kilometres inland. How we begin our lives, how we understand what it means to be human, informs how we die. I can't offer any solutions. I place no vote. I am just contending that there are richer conversations that could be had about the cultural poverty that exists around dying. This holistic management course is broken up into four sessions of two days, with part two due later in April. And this one is about context. And context comes through the grief walker and it comes through Tyson all the time. One of, my, one of the best things about it are my fellow participants, 20-odd producers and a small sprinkling of designers, IT workers, carbon project developers and workshop facilitators, all being trained to focus on setting up good systems for decision-making and planning, on farms specifically, but applicable in any organisation. So Alan Savory's work turns conventional grazing and cropping know-how on its head. It challenges what is still being taught in ag schools across Australia. For this reason, Brian Welberg, our trainer, leads in with a lot of work on paradigms, forcing us to examine how our actions are formed by our often unexamined belief systems and acknowledging how challenging it can be to identify and challenge belief systems even when the need and desire to change direction and the advantages of doing so are clearly defined. One farmer in our group reported feeling heart palpitations when faced with the idea of a paddock full of capeweed, and this is a broadleaf plant common in WA, and a theoretically locked poison cupboard. For this bloke, looking at even one capeweed plant, training kicked in hard. Unwanted plant equals weed equals poison needed, equals good farmer practice, equals good farmer neighbour. We were all asked to shift the focus and ask different questions of the plant and the broader environment, like, why is the capeweed there? And what is this plant's function in the land? The answer came back profoundly simple. The capeweed is there because the environment suits it. It likes shit soil. And observationally, without prejudice, while it is there, it's clearly in service of soil health, keeping the earth covered and roots in the ground over the hot months. The plants our farmer wants to see there, the juicy money-making annuals, can't grow in the conditions on the ground at the moment, so what are his choices? If he does go the herbicide route, he's on the path of chemical dependency, requiring a lot of product to be bought in from the egg supply shop, big expense, big list of environmentally destructive side effects. Within the group, we toss around ideas that don't start with focusing on the capeweed as the problem and focus more on getting the environment, in this case, the paddock, into the right frame of mind to support diversity and get the mineral cycle up and running. So if not a chemical response... How about mechanically slashing the capeweeds? Well, this would create a carpet of green manure 
Then with the start of the season, the farmer could sow an assortment of seeds and grains into the cover and kickstart the microbes that will help bring the soil back into balance, away from what is now pioneer plant heaven. Or use animals as slashers and fertilising agents. Crash graze the paddock with a big mob over a short period of time to chew down and churn up the soil. Apparently at certain times of the year, capeweed will make your animals very fat and content. Then sow a diverse range of seeds for the microbial livestock to get to work on. Start to conjure the symbiotic magic that will help balance pH levels, clear toxicity and tip the environment away from bacterial towards fungal-dominated soil. Very suitable for the desirable annuals. Holistic management is context-based, big-picture thinking, and it's agnostic. It doesn't mind what tools or strategies are used on the land, as long as observation and monitoring tools tell a practitioner that soil is being built rather than mined, biodiversity supported rather than reduced. To take us from a linear problem-solving view to the broader 360 vision holistic management demands, Brian created a simple game. He blew up a small plastic beach ball painted with the countries of the globe, then stood us in a circle, each of us holding a little card with a printed word and a thumb stuck in the air. So butterfly, soil, earthworm, rain, bacteria, bird, etc. He then ran around within this circle, unrolling a ball of twine, linking us across space, thumb to thumb, seed with rain, cow with grass, etc., gradually creating a net that became more and more complex until it had enough density to hold the globe. At the time, it felt obvious, a child's game. But reflecting on it later, I realised how helpful it was to have this embodied picture of the relationships upon which ecosystems and communities are constructed. Tyson Yunkerporter, and you know we're far from finished with Tyson, when he talked of the ceremony of increase that is part of Indigenous tribal culture, my Western mind skipped ahead, yeah, 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 help keep the resource coming, more fish, more yams, more of everything, thanks, and then was thrown wildly onto another course by what he was actually saying, that an increase ceremony was geared towards strengthening relationships, re-energising connectedness between all visible and invisible participants of an ecosystem. It's taken me a while to understand that the labels, the nodes in this cooperative system, were being moved in relation to each other by these connections. It's what runs back and forth along those string lines, the relational forces that are moving the nodes that create the patterns that we need to focus on. So there's a subtle but telling difference in the Appalach man's words that contrast with the Western version of increase, which is invariably about growth, unlimited growth. In the ag zone, the concept of unchecked growth is of systems that are stuck endlessly in harvest mode. This is sometimes referred to as moron farming. Yeah, look, it's not really funny, is it? It's a sad sort of a joke and not really helpful to those producers stuck in a chemical and mechanical cycle, not really of their own making. But this child's web has become a living map, I can see, a way forward, 
So I'll keep linking with other beings by written words, in conversations, by my actions, my thoughts, tagging anyone who cares to listen and listening to anyone who cares. I'm going to keep that twine unrolling until a weave is dense enough to hold an ecosystem, a community that can express my yearning for a biologically and socially sane and diverse world. Thanks for listening. Next time, well, next time it'll be different.